Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-host for the evening, Anastasia. Lavendar is taking a much-needed rest from her busy schedule, so please note that she won't be taking any new clients until July. And good news, Mercury went direct last week, so it's moving in the right direction now. Our special guest this evening is gemstone expert Nicholas Pearson, who explores more than 100 gemstones and crystals strongly connected with the energies of the Divine Feminine. In his newest book, Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine, he details each stone's spiritual and healing properties, astrological and elemental correspondences, goddess archetypes and lore, magical uses, and the aspects of the divine feminine it embodies. Providing an overview of major goddesses from around the world, he reveals how goddess traditions and myths have incorporated stones throughout history. Nicholas has been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for more than 20 years. He developed a profound love for rocks and minerals in early childhood, and his passion grew to include the spiritual beliefs about stones from cultures around the world. He began teaching crystal workshops in high school, later studying mineral science at Stetson's University's Wait, Stetson University's Gillespie Museum, um, a certified teacher of Reiki. He teaches crystal and Reiki classes throughout the United States. He's also the author of The Seven Archetypal Stones, Foundations of Reiki Ryoho, Crystal Healing for the Heart, and Crystals for Karmic Healing. You can visit his website, which is theluminouspearl.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy, Fiona, and Jada for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for Nicholas. We have an online starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here and you'll get our weekly show notices if you enable those on your um, on your membership or whatever they call it. Our main website is starseedhotline.com and the Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Anastasia or myself. And as I mentioned earlier, Lavendar is taking a much-needed rest and isn't uh, taking new clients at this time uh, until July. And if you have a birthday coming up, Don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And remember, if you want a stage two interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order it uh, three or four months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. 
So first up tonight, I want to introduce Anastasia with her wonderful Starseed News. And I was, oh, oh my gosh, the screen jumped. Hang on, Anastasia. Okay, screen jumped and my click went somewhere else. Okay, we're good now. Hi. Hello. Hi, good evening. You can hear me. Great, yeah. great. Yes, yes, and, and well. you'd think that Mercury was still retrograde, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, you know, it happens. It lingers, doesn't it? This was a heck of it a does. retrograde period. Oh, wow. it sure I'm was. Always, you all know by listening to me moan about it every time it happens. I'm so glad it's over. But, yeah, it does hang on for a while. Yeah. So you're doing good. Well, you're really, a good captain really takes, of this. Huh? I was going to say it really takes three weeks after it turns direct to get back to where it was before all the nonsense started. Yeah, so three weeks. This it's moving in the right direction. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Well, anyway, okay. we're, it's better. It's getting better. Yes. Yeah. It is well, we better. have an incoming solar wind. There's a southern hole in the Earth's, uh, excuse me, in the sun's atmosphere. <laughs> I hope we don't have a hole in ours. A southern hole in the sun's atmosphere that's spewing a stream of solar wind toward Earth. Estimated time of arrival is going to be the 4th of April, just two days from now. They're telling us that minor geomagnetic storms and Arctic auroras will be possible when the gas arrives in our atmosphere. And in Florida last week on Wednesday, they had hail as large as golf balls. Uh, it pelted a large swath of central Florida last Wednesday, as I've said. Heavy storms battered that region. A periodical called Florida Today reported that windows were shattered, pool screens were blown apart, and cars were damaged, while piles of ice up to two inches high covered the ground in some areas along the Space Coast in Brevard County. We've had a few earthquakes since uh, last program. A strong 6.2 magnitude earthquake hit near the coast of Ecuador. No immediate reports of damages or injuries with that. A uh, shallow magnitude 6.0 quake hit off the coast of Mauritius. And a 6.4 magnitude earthquake hits New Britain Island in Papua, New Guinea, just a couple of days ago. And in the Netherlands, gee... The uh, Netherlands have lost eight, has lost 84% of its butterflies in just over 100 years. Uh, it's shrunk, uh, in, and the Dutch butterfly population has shrunk by at least 84% between ni- uh, 1890 and 2017, two years ago. Uh, the new figures are based on an analysis of long-term data resulting from a national measuring program developed by uh, organizations there. They say three years ago, scientists recorded a growth in some types of butterfly for the first time since they began monitoring in the early 1990s. But nevertheless, the latest figures show that overall, the numbers are declining yet once again. And uh, there's a study now coming out, uh, sort of being dripped out, that there's an increase in levels of Fukushima-related contamination in Alaskan waters. And all of this is going on as Tokyo is reassuring the world that everything is okay and uh, with the 2020 Olympics. So come one, come all is what they're saying. But recent warnings about radioactive contamination from Fukushima have been published, like I said, in this drip, drip, drop of information. And it's slowly coming out. Well, in 2017, a study by the University of Hawaii at Manoa revealed almost 50% of the fish consumed on the islands of Hawaii were contaminated with cesium-134, which happens to be the radioactive fingerprint of Fukushima. 
Now, this report also showed that migrating organisms can transport the Fukushima signature uh, CCM-134 over a significant distance. And they found this in the Pacific bluefin tuna uh, caught off the California coast only a year after the Fukushima uh, disaster. And they also found this uh, radioactive material in longfin tuna, which is albacore, along the western coast of the U.S. just a year after the disaster. Well, anyway, the recent findings are being played down. The uh, authorities are telling people that it's nothing to worry about. But this latest study supposedly shows a slightly elevated level of radioactive contamination uh, in the northern Bering Sea uh, by Alaska. Uh, this sampling was conducted by residents of St. Lawrence Island, and it has documented Fukushima's plume arriving in the Bering Sea for the first time and shows levels of this CCM-137 higher than they were before the 2011 nuclear power plant accident in Japan. Now, the 2020 uh, Tokyo Olympic Games would be a pretty good platform to reassure the world that all is well at the Fukushima site, uh, despite the leaking radioactive isotopes that are expected to continue for the next 300 years and longer. They tell us that Tokyo is spending at least $20 billion to organize the Olympics. And according to some, these games allow the Japanese government to focus on that because they haven't been very successful in cleaning up the ongoing leaking of radioactivity from the Fukushima plant. Uh, it's been just about 10 years since the disaster. It's approaching 10 years and uh, we have been told, the public's been told, that the Fukushima site will be entirely cleaned and decommissioned in less than 40 years. But that's a date obviously long after next year's Olympics. It certainly seems also to be scientific impossible since some radioactive isotopes, they tell us, will be spread across this uh, landmass, the Fukushima site, and the surrounding landscape for 300 years and others for as many as 250,000 years. So, something to keep in mind. Um, by the way, uh, the, some studies have shown that the samples of soil in the Fukushima uh, uh, baseball stadium are highly radioactive. They say that it is 3,000 times more radioactive than the dirt from U.S. atomic testing sites. So, anyway. Wow. All right. Uh, Wonderful news out of medicine, very interesting. They tell us that blue light could soon be used to treat superbug infections. Blue light. Well, maybe some of you have heard of MRSA, the methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus uh, is a bacterium that causes infection in various parts of the body, called a superbug, because it's of ability to dodge many ordinary antibiotics. It's resistant and they say that all mo although most MRSA infections are not serious, some of them can be life-threatening. And rather than just sort of hoping that many uh, antibiotic co combinations uh, will work to uh, control this infection, they say that now doctors can use this new method of light therapy to disarm the superbugs. It's really interesting how this works. Uh, we found out that researchers at Purdue University and Boston University have discovered that exposing these bacterium to blue light will render them defenseless against, uh, 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 what does this say here, antiseptics as mild as hydrogen peroxide. And they tell us that this can treat any superficial wound infected with MRSA, 
And these are very difficult to treat, I can tell you that. And MRSA in a scratch and the finger really gets to be very problematic. But they're telling us that this blue light uh, renders these bacteria incapable of, of uh, reprodu- reproducing and getting worse. And they're hoping that this is going to be a device that people can carry around in their purses to treat any wounds that they have on their bodies in case these wound sites are containing these anti, uh, uh, antibiotic resistant uh, uh, organisms. Now, I didn't know this until I read the article, but apparently you can buy a light therapy mask for acne, according to this article. And they said that this is similar to that, except that this device looks like a small box. It has a hole for a light to come through. And here's the catch. It says that some bacteria contain pigments, uh, colors. And these pigments are associated with this organism's ability to hurt us. Interesting, huh? And it says Hmm. that if you know how to reduce the pigment then you can uh, incapacitate the organism's activity in the body. It's called photobleaching. And they compared it to bleaching clothing in the washing machine. When you take out the color using chemicals, they say that this is a similar thing, but instead of using bleach, they're using blue light. So apparently this light bleaches the pigments inside of the bacteria that makes them so lethal. Now, who would think of that? I just think that's really interesting. But if it is a cure, it would be just such a blessing uh, for people that get this infection. It would just be great. They say that they hope to have this available in a very short time. All right, well, more about the uh, automatic cars, the Tesla cars, the artificially intelligent-driven cars in the, store, in the news tonight. Uh, Chinese hackers uh, hacked into the Tesla car and made it do strange things, undesirable things. Researchers from the Keen Labs in China, which they say is one of the most widely respected cybersecurity research groups in the world, well, they have successfully hacked a Tesla Model Model S autopilot car and forced this car to drive into an oncoming lane. And according to Keen Labs, they say that their experiments prove that the computer architecture for the Tesla Model S has great security risks. This uh, research team said that they could remotely hack and control the steering wheel. They could activate the windshield wipers. And they said that they uh, uh, can also hack the cruise control without any limitations. And... uh, Previously, I don't know when, but the same laboratory, the same cybersecurity group, made headlines because they managed to remotely control the Tesla's brakes from up to 12 miles away. So hacking concerns with these artificially intelligent-driven cars, AI cars. Too much computer software in them, and they're hackable. Well... Hang on, I'm going to share a story with you. It's not very pleasant, but it's a story, and I think you should know about it. Um, it's, it came out uh, not this year, but last year, late last year. And the headlines read, U.S. Marines reveal plans for plasma crowd control weapon that screams, burns, blinds, and kills from 3,000 feet away. The U.S. Marines are developing a new laser weapon that can transmit voice messages at long range or be turned up to deafen 
dazzle, or even kill people. It's called the Scalable Compact Ultra Short Pulse Laser System, and it will be mounted on a truck or a tank. It will initially be used as a non-lethal weapon for crowd control, according to government documents. But if people get out of hand, well, they can do worse things. Now, the aim of the project is to develop a lightweight and energy-efficient uh, ultra-short pulse laser that can produce sustainable and controllable plasma uh, for non-lethal effects. And at the lowest setting, this weapon can create speech, make its own speech, up to a 1,000 meters away, uh, deliver voice messages. It can also send a flash-blind impulse that will blind people at a minimum distance of 100 meters. The highest setting of this device will let loose what they call full-scalable thermal ablative effects. What in the world is that? Well, the article goes on to tell us that this uh, laser, this energy, will burn through natural clothing, fabric, denim, leather, whatever. It would vaporize the outer layer of the skin, turning it into gas. By using this effect, it says that it will allow operators to control crowds or enemies, but they intend to first warn people before using the higher settings. The documentation for this project says that it will have direct application to many other U.S. government agencies, as well as hmm, civilian law enforcement. They're planning to complete this in 2019, after which they will build a prototype and and test it. Wow, things, you know, getting kind of mean out there. Okay, here's a wonderful story. I love this. Norwegian hospitals are adding woodland cabins and forest play for for healing for children. Now, you know, when we think about it, when we look back in history and think about uh, treatment for wounds, injuries, sickness in, in times past, we can really think that in many ways we're fortunate to have hospitals. But they're not inspiring places. They're awful places. They're stark. They're sterile. Too many rules. No soul. And... Uh, The more that people are now learning about the importance of emotional well-being as it relates to good physical health, the more it seems that present-day hospital environments are detrimental. But in Norway, they have taken this to heart, and they're exploring a workaround to the conventional hospital environment. For children, they have found a way to let nature help. They've decided that the health benefits of spending time outside have been proven again and again and again. So why not let ill children have some time amongst the trees? And so the country's two largest hospitals have created outdoor care retreats, which are spaces that offer their children, their child patients, a reprieve from the stringent treatments and isolation that often accompanies hospitalization. Now, one of these retreats is tucked into a lush forest right beside a creek, a short walk from the entrance to Norway's largest hospital. And another building cozies up to a pond in deciduous woodlands in the south of Norway. Now, a child psychologist who works with the Department of uh, Children and Adolescent Mental Health had been bringing patients into the woods for years. She said that she started with just a few children at a time, and they were 
getting better and better. It was showing very positive results. Then they started to bring groups of children. But then they realized that uh, only children that were well enough to get into the woods could make the trip. So what they decided to do was build a hospital in the woods and create a woodland environment for the children where they could be treated right in the middle of the woods and have access to nature no matter what their condition was. And they say that bringing patients outside the hospital helps them find the strength to get through their illness. It gives them a feeling of possibility. It gives them more energy, definitely more hope and creativity and healing energy. And that's just wonderful. I think that's brilliant. This represents the best of what humanity is capable of, or at least part of that. It's a very inspiring thing to think about. So many things we could do with our lives and our energy in this wonderful time. And uh, alternative healing is really stepping in and stepping up to the needs of people at this time. I want to share a quote with you from a man who wrote a book called Rip Van Winkle and the Pumpkin Lantern. It's a cute title. I've never read it. But this is the quote. I am Mother Nature. All of creation bows before me. When people leave their cities and learn of me, walk in my woods, bathe in my rivers, eat of my harvest, they will find healing to their souls. But stray from me and return to the supposed wisdom of men, and they will find themselves in chains once more. Wow. So, let us all spend some time in nature this coming week. And the daffodils are blooming, and the bulbs are coming up, other kinds of beautiful bulbs, and the red buds, and leaves are popping out on the trees, and the birdies are happy. <laughs> They're getting ready to nest and make new birdies. It's a wonderful time of year. The life force of the earth is pouring out of her, and it's a great time for all of us that are beleaguered and tired and maybe a little bit jaded or a little bit off-center get out in this beautiful, glorious display of life and energy and light out into Mother Nature and share the truth that she gives us every day. So from my heart to each one of you, much love. Have a beautiful week, everybody, and I hope you take time to spend with the daffodils this coming week. And I hope your daffodils are blooming. If not, they certainly will be. I know in the upper states, I think that maybe the tulips don't bloom in Wyoming until about July, but... It will come, believe me. Sooner or later, you'll see some flowers. So that'll be all for tonight, Ariel. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the Starseed News, Anastasia. Um, and I love that quote. That was that was very profound. Isn't that so nice? thanks for bringing us the news once again. Sure. Talk to you next week. Okay. Next week. Okay. Bye bye. Well, I'm going to uh, get Nicholas's microphone open here in just a second. Hi, Nicholas. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's our pleasure. And we're so glad that you've come up with this wonderful new book. Um, and we're going to be talking about that and, and lots of details of, of um, all you've learned. But let's kind of just you know start at the beginning. And, and how did all of this um interest in this this magnetism towards stones how did it start for you child some of my earliest memories are picking up rocks everywhere that i went um you know family vacations you know summer trips to um 
you know, the mountains, anywhere it might be, the, the language of stone just seemed to speak to my heart. And it was just so easy to begin to personify earth through the lens of Mother Nature and kind of connect to it as this living, breathing thing. Even though we, we sometimes picture rock and gem as being inert substance, there is a life to it that has just always called to me. Uh, and, and many, many indigenous um, people, they, they, they have conversations with so-called inanimate objects, but it's there for those who can hear. So you you started um, just being fascinated with stones, and then you got a really early start, um, as I as I read in in your um, your introduction, that uh, since doing crystal workshops when you were in high school, that's unheard of. <laughs> well, you know, um, <laughs> b- before I had much of a, a formal training in anything metaphysical or spiritual, I kind of did my own research and forged my own path. Um, by the ripe old age of eight, I'd been given my first piece of quartz by my grandfather. And that allowed me to see a totally different side of the mineral kingdom. It was no longer just these roughly hewn rocks, maybe, you know, water smooth pebbles that I find at the shore. Um, it was, you know, luminous, transparent. It had these rigid angles that were somehow very comforting and, and very symmetrical. And that inspired me to want to learn more. And where other families might have gone to church on Sundays, my dad and I would go to the library, you know, every weekend, every other weekend um, for years and years on end. So I was an avid reader. Um, You know, there there wasn't the distraction of smartphones and social media. So I would fill up my spare time with the written word. And, you know, one week I might have learned something about archaeology or old folklore or, you know, uh, anything along those lines. The next week it might be, you know, the hard sciences and things along those lines. And I, I really had a lot of fun looking at the parallels between um, myth, history, and folk tales and the science of what those stories was trying to tell us. You know, it was all trying to teach the same thing, but just with a different set of vocabulary. You know, one is more poetic and metaphorical and the other is, you know, based on fact and figure. But they, they aim us in the same direction if only we look for the bridge. So by the time I was in high school, I'd been a really avid crystal collector. I'd been um, using them as part of my personal practice. I'd studied up as, as well as one can in those days. And um, I was invited to start teaching and it's been this love affair. You know, some, suddenly sitting in the, the teacher's seat was like coming home, and um, it's, it's been a big part of my life ever since. Well, you've obviously had crystal mastership in previous lifetimes um, to just, you know, feel like you've come home when you're teaching about crystals. Um, I'd say that's a pretty safe bet. So um, what got you pointed in the, in the direction with the goddess-centered spirituality? You know, that probably came about came about in middle school, high school, when I, I first started to want to dig deep into um, finding my own way with spirituality. Um, my, my father grew up very Catholic, so I grew up not much of anything at all. Um, and that gave me a lot of freedom to sample from the buffet of world religions. Um, but I think one of the things that spoke most clearly to me were the sort of earth-based spiritual paths, um, things that leaned a little bit more towards the sort of neo-pagan or, you know, inspired by the indigenous people of the world, uh, just being able to view life as, 
manifesting from the divine in, in all parts of the world. Um, you know, every rock, every tree, every creature was this divine spark. And, you know, when we start to acknowledge that, we see the, the bigger patterns. We start to see the work of the divine in all that we do. And because divinity is so big, you know, the human mind can't, can't really comprehend the enormity of it. We start to break it down into digestible chunks. So it, it made sense to me that if the whole world was a beautiful spectrum, then certainly God should be a beautiful spectrum too. And we could view that as masculine and feminine. We could view that as dark and light. We could view that as, you know, celestial and terrestrial. Um, and that's really what got me building my first initial relationship with the divine sense. And um, you said that you, you studied the neo-pagan. Did that include, you know, the Celtic and, um, and Druidic um, texts? You know, I'd say I, I did some cursory reading on those. That part of the world um, is beautiful and fascinates me. Uh, I'm going to be able to go to the British Isles later this year um, and, and engage in, you know, communing with those energies firsthand. But, you know, just as much as, as Western Europe called to me, um, you know, parts of Northern Africa and the Middle East and, um, you know, the Afro-Caribbean pantheon, indigenous peoples of the Americas, you know, these these all kind of spoke to me in different ways. And, you know, it's it's not as if I just kind of took a piece of everything and melted it all together, but I, I really tried to see how each one has shaped the human psyche all around the world. So, you know, although those sort of witchier topics have been a big part of my practice. It's it's only been one strand of the tapestry. Hmm. So what actually inspired you to write a book about the goddess stones? You know, I think the book picked me rather than the other way around. It's It started as <laughs> one of those ideas when I was just kind of in the middle of other topics that, that wouldn't leave me alone. And I didn't have a whole lot of time to devote to it. So I you know, jot down a few notes here or there. And it would just kind of come up from the back of my mind and work its way to the forefront. And, um, you know, eventually I had to like sit down and assess, was this a topic I could really um, do justice to? Is it one that I, I wanted to go as deep as was going to be required? And, you know, thankfully I had the support from my wonderful publisher. Um, the team at Inner Tradition has been a joy to work with for every project I've had so far. But this one in particular, I wasn't quite sure if it was going to fit in alongside some of my other titles, but uh, they were really receptive to it, and that really inspired me to, to continue digging deeper. So the whole book actually began with just uh, a table of different goddesses, the cultures they come from, a few key words that they might represent or relate to, and then a list of stones. And some of these stones came from very old sources. Some came from um, the sort of correspondences of modern spellcraft traditions, and, and others were really just my observations of the sort of mythic themes and spiritual energies that are associated with different figures of the divine feminine, and then the emerging new crystals that we're getting now that obviously have no ancient literature because they're new, um, but still connect to those same archetypal forces. And you know, out of that, that list, the whole book was developed. Um, when you said there's new stones, meaning that we just found out about them, but the stones have been around for eons. Is that correct? Generally speaking, yeah. You know, um, the the life cycle of rocks and minerals happens in geological timescales. So our whole lives, generations of us, are, are passing the blink of an eye on the geological scale. Um, but there are some minerals that form relatively quickly. 
Um, you know, there are examples of things like um, halite and gypsum or selenite that, you know, can form in a matter of days or weeks or months or years. Um, and so there, there are such a thing as new minerals. Um, but by and large, most of the new things in this book are, are new to the market. And they've been sort of sequestered by Mother Earth until the time was ripe and ready for them to come out into the world. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So um, do you want to go into the um, the the details and, and pick, you know, some some of the goddesses and the stones connected to them and, and what, and, you know, what those particular energies would be? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, in the, the book itself has in the compendium uh, 107 different stones. Um, and then it's also got a, a table, that original table, but much more fleshed out with um, scores more stones than, than the book actually has time to go into. So um, there's, there's a lot of room in there. But why don't we pick um, maybe a, an old favorite and a relatively new stone and kind of compare and contrast the energies of them. Um, I okay. think maybe lapis lapis would be a great place to get started because, one, it's one of my favorite gemstones. I'm a little biased. Um, and, two, it's got such a rich tradition of goddess lore associated with it, and it goes back to, you know, uh, prehistory. So the name lapis lazuli kind of is a nod to its color and its symbolism. Um, we get the word lapis from Greek just meaning stone, and then lazuli comes ultimately from an old Persian word, lazuvard, which meant blue, and then later as that word evolved, it took on the connotations of being related to the sky. And if we look at a polished piece of lapis lazuli, it looks like golden stars scattered on the dark blue background of the night sky. You might see white swirls of calcite that could represent clouds or nebulas or far-off galaxies. We kind of get the impression that this stone is calling to our our own starlight, our own celestial origins. And, and truly, it's a stone that's associated with the sort of archetypal role of the goddess as the queen of heaven, you know, she who oversees all of the cosmos. Um, and especially as related to kind of an aspect of that that we might call the stellar goddess or the star goddess. Um, and we can look at a few examples. So if we go to ancient Egypt, we see depictions of the goddess of the night sky, and, we, um, and she is painted in a dark blue color. Often those pigments were derived from the stone lapis lazuli itself. And then golden yellow stars will be painted all over her body as she kind of arches herself over the world. Um, and, you know, the, the color combination and design of this goddess are surely inspired by the stone lapis lazuli. It's a really great stone for connecting to the energy of the goddess as the expanse of the night sky. Um, a few other figures that are associated with um, the Queen of Heaven archetype could be um, Inanna, Ishtar, um, a sort of primitive goddess that would eventually become Venus or Aphrodite. Um, but in relationship to Inanna or Ishtar, um, from Babylon, Samaria, that, that time frame, there's a very famous myth where her lover, uh, Addis or Donis, is slain in battle, and she goes to rescue him. Um, to do so, she has to descend into the underworld and sort of plead with her, her, her darker half, her, her sister, Ereshkigal, who is the, the queen of the underworld, the queen of the abode of the dead, um, and, you know, try to bargain to get her lover's soul back to reanimate him. And when she goes on this journey, she has to pass through seven gates, and at each of these seven gates she has to make a sacrifice. And the only thing she's got with her on her journey are literally the clothes on her back. So she gets to that seventh gate, and she's wearing nothing but her lapis lazuli necklace, and she leaves that at the gate. 
and this was said to be the source of her power, a talisman that imbued her with magic. And she sets that down, and she's still able to go and, and, you know, return successful from her journey. And I think one of the things that Lapis is trying to tell us there is that the real magic is within us all along. You know, just like a stone, we're humble, we're born of earth, but we are noble, we are celestial, we have that starlight within us. It's that whole axiom of as above, so below. Um, Another way that Lapis kind of pops up in this myth is that um, one of the epithets associated with her, her darker half in Rishkigal is the, the queen of the Lapis Lazuli Mountain. And so, um, you know, it's presumable that the mountain or the palace in which she lived was carved from this stone, and therefore each of those seven gates that Inanna walks through is also carved of this. So the, the stone is there to kind of show us that both ends of the spectrum are really parts of a bigger whole. Inanna is not necessarily so separate from Rishkigal, but they are, you know, the two sides of one coin. So it reminds us that we all have yin and yang, dark and light. We have life and death, the you know, alpha and omega within us at all times. And when we tap into that potential, we have great power. There's great healing to be had. Um, you know, maybe as, as profound a healing as the resurrection of uh, Inanna's lover. So I, I think that's a really great stone for tapping into the divine feminine. It's going to really help us find our place in the cosmos. Um, it's all about sovereignty, personal power, but it, it helps us get there by harmonizing the heart and the mind. So our intellect and our emotions are totally on the same page. We can truly live our most authentic life, our most magical life, when we come from that whole place. Oh, I agree. Wow, that's fascinating. I've never heard that story. Um, but And have you... Have you, in studying the various you know, like archetypal goddesses from culture to culture, um, do you see like the same energy with different names? Um, I personally do. I mean, you know, there there are two kind of different camps in this. There are those who are hard polytheists who believe that you know Minerva and Athena and other other goddesses that might occupy related roles but in different cultures are discrete entities just like you and me and then there is what we call the soft polytheists who think that really these might be different different faces worn by the same energy um and you know my my place is probably somewhere in between those two i think the gods are just as separate as you and me but i don't think we're all that separate either because if we're all first ideas in, in the mind of creator the cosmic source of all that is the great initiator of the universe and an idea can never truly leave its source. It can manifest outside of it, but it's still there, held in sacred trust within the heart, mind of creator, then we all are already one. And I think it's, it's probably the same for the gods, the spirits, um, the, those energies that, that we connect with in our spiritual practice. So um, I do tend to identify these things as archetypal forces, but that doesn't discredit their individual personalities and stories and myths and gifts that they bring to the table, just like it doesn't for us. Well, I mean, if you want to look at it as, you know, a soul can reincarnate and have many names and many lifetimes, and it's all part of a of a collective, and and even if those um, you know those lifetimes are separate, there's still that that commonality, that common thread of connectivity um, between all the incarnations and and i know i mean i mean the romans and the greeks had um different names for the same entities um 
I mean, at least in in my in my understanding, and um, <laughs> we're going back to you know studying mythology in school, but um, I mean, I thought that Minerva was just the um, the Roman name for Athena. You know, in, like in like um, you know, Hermes and Mercury. It's the same the same god with just two different names, maybe two different um, incarnations, but the qualities are still aligned. In many cases that, that did happen, but it happened gradually through a process called syncretism, wherein maybe the, the native deities of the Etruscans or the other tribes that would eventually become the Roman Empire were sort of superimposed or grafted onto the, the substrate, the structure that the, the Greeks had in their religion as the two cultures began to exchange information and ideas. Um, but, you know, a, a really great example would be Venus and Aphrodite. Um, you know, the ancient cult of Aphrodite far predates, you know, what we think of as organized Greco-Roman religion. And it would be only over a long period of time that we see all of these ideas kind of coalescing into one more or less uniform goddess. That's why we have so many different myths that are associated with some of these gods and goddesses. You might have, um, you know, some cultures or tribes or, or groups of stories that are handed down that conflict with others because, you know, they were originally smaller local deities who got um, sort of pulled together into a, a larger idea. Well, that makes total sense. So, um why do you think it's important for for people to connect to the divine feminine? Well, right now, you know, the world is in such turmoil. We have so many parts of the human psyche, so many parts of of the nation, of the planet that are in need of healing. And I think that a, a large part of that reason has been the gradual disenfranchisement, disempowerment, and abuse of the divine feminine. And, and I don't just mean in the sense of, um, you know, matriarchal or matrifocal religion being um, kind of put away in a box on a shelf for another day or time as, as the patriarchy rose to power. I mean, even the identification of the inner divine feminine and divine masculine that we have within all of us. You know, the soul has no gender. The soul experiences any incarnations as, as male, female, or above and beyond, or in between those things. And... Um, we, we therefore accumulate that, that current of inner divine feminine, divine masculine. And as we disempower women and other oppressed groups, we really are doing a great disservice to that idea of God as mother. And um, I think really by embracing the innate power, the innate beauty, the innate human potential that we have in the divine feminine, we'll maybe hopefully start to respect ourselves and one another on a better level. I think in one, in one way, because we're all children of the goddess, we're all children of the great mother. Once we recognize that, it becomes a great equalizer. And we can start to look for common ground instead of focus on our differences. We can start to look for um, how we are in this game together rather than looking at one another as opposing factions. Um, and that's one of the gifts of working with the divine feminine. It won't solve our problems overnight, but it can maybe start to help us think in terms of solution rather than problems. Oh, that's so well said. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, and, you know, as you did mention, um, I, and I like the way you put it, the soul has no gender. And it has only been through societal programming for thousands of years that um, that the feminine has been 
um, disempowered. And, you know, and so many, I mean, the the qualities, the principles of the divine feminine, they do exist in both genders as, as does the divine masculine. But we've just gotten out of balance. So how can, how can um, using and understanding uh, stones and crystals uh, assist us with that rebalancing? I, I think maybe the first level that is really helpful is maybe um, evocative of that quote that Anastasia gave us about um, Mother Nature. When we hold a piece of Mother Nature, when we hold a rock, a mineral, a twig, a berry, whatever it might be, we are holding part and parcel of the body of the great mother that birthed us all. So, um, you know, gemstones become the sort of cells of the primordial mother that is our planet. And the moment we start to recognize this, the moment we recognize how we are changing the world by interacting with it, and, you know, the idea behind this might be that we start to respect the environment, we start to respect the planet itself, and therefore all of the denizens of it, not just the human ones either. Um, I think that's a great thing we can do just from taking a step back without necessarily having to connect to specific gems or minerals. Um, but then we also see there's this sort of resurgence of goddess energy coming in. Um, the, the pendulum has kind of swung too far in one direction. It's, it's completed its arc, and it's going to start swinging back if it hasn't already. And I, I think we're already on the backswing, which means that the energy of the divine feminine is going to come up and start to meet the divine masculine in balance. So as those energies shift in the cosmos, you know, as above, so below, we're starting to see new tools in, form, in the form of rocks and minerals that are here to support that. Um, so maybe, maybe there are gemstones we now have access to that our ancestors didn't that are going to help us harmonize these new frequencies of unconditional love, support, healing, um, and also help us maybe manifest some of the ferocity of the, the darker and fiercer faces of the goddess that we need to balance um, and, um, you know, to, to incorporate them in our lives might be as simple as finding your favorite one of them and meeting it in meditation on a regular basis or placing it around your, your home, your office as a reminder. As long as we do that consciously, it's going to have an effect. And then even above and beyond that, we can use them in our healing practices. We can work them into um, ritual. We can allow them to become these sort of focal points for really conscious change. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, you said now there are some new stones. There's new gemstones that the earth has finally revealed or maybe they've just, you know, formed in the last geological age. But um, tell us about some of the new the new stones. Yeah, I'd love to. So um, uh, I think one of my favorites in the book that's on the newer side would be the, the family of quartz that are called the Morian Sea Crystals. Um, they were really brought to public knowledge in the very end of 1999, early 2000. Um, um, there was a guy in the business by the name of uh, David Geiger who started to notice this very strange configuration among quartz crystals that came from this one particular area um, called Sejo do Cabral in, in Portuguese. Um, and um, they, they virtually all had this very similar habit, these unusual horizontal lines on every other face, immense clarity, kind of a matte finish, and then even had a pinkish hue. Um, and uh, although the, the, the morphology, the shape of these crystals had been determined long before um, and occurred in other parts of the world, the energy of these was really something that the, the human race hadn't experienced in our work with crystals. 
um, at least not recently. And so they were said to connect to the energy of Lemuria. And Katrina Raphael, who wrote a, a really influential series of books in the 80s and 90s, um, basically gave them their, their first write-up ever in the form of a, a newsletter that she, she did in that time frame. But if we look at the sort of prototypes of Lemuria and Atlantis as the, the cradles of civilization, Lemuria is the, the energy of um, you know, working in harmony, cooperation. It's the, the yin archetype. And then Atlantis becomes a sort of more yang archetype of the, the, the masculine projective, outward focus, dominion over rather than cooperation with nature. Um, and so the Lorraine Sea Crystals are these great beacons for the new divine feminine. Um, they, they really help us kind of connect to the greater archetypes that learn how to integrate those into the changing um, topography of our world. Um, and there, there are some really interesting configurations that have come out. Instead of just the, the classic ones, we have another variety that's called the goddess phantom Lemurian sea crystals, which are more of a, a color combination between smoky and citrine. and these light chalky phantoms in them. Um, there's another group that are called uh, the scarlet temple Lemurian sea crystals, or sometimes just the strawberry Lemurian crystals have um, a higher saturation of hematite on and just below the surface that turn them sort of strawberry pink color. And they bring so much passion to the energy. Um, some of the, the sweetness is swept away by the, the fire of that iron compound. Um, and they allow us to sort of reclaim um, sacred sexuality and pleasure as acts of devotion and worship and, you know, uh, we're, we're put in physical bodies for a reason, so when we engage in our spiritual paths, sometimes we forget that. We try to live up in the spiritual realm. Sometimes we try to deny um, our physical body. Um, but this, this is a stone, the strawberry lorin seed crystals, that really allows us to be embodiment as, as pure love, as, as you know, pure ecstatic union with, with source. And that's really the, the beauty of the Divine Mother. She's there to receive us. And when we do that, our, our lives can become these blissful, ever-changing things. Um, there's another group, even, even newer, of the Lemurian seed crystals that are sometimes called the Veil of Isis crystals or the Blue Mist Lemurians, and they actually come from Colombia. And um, the time I, I wrote the book, when we got the final edits in, we still weren't entirely sure what the inclusions were inside them. We thought they were probably a variety of amphibole, which was a really common group of minerals. Um, but they have this sort of veil-like, almost misty, blue, bluish-white um, smoke within them. And it turns out that, that in, um, like, seeing microscopic sections, they've been able to, to look at the structure of these inclusions, and they're actually open tubes. They don't contain a mineral anymore. They once did, um, but they've been removed by other geologic activity. So there's almost like this mysterious void within the crystal that bends light to, to make them appear blue. And these crystals are like our invitation to the cosmic dance, if I can quote my, my dear friend and mentor, Sharon. Um, and they're here to remind us that if we want to step up and play with the bigger picture in the cosmos and, you know, be, be sort of, you know, sitting at the grown-ups table at Thanksgiving, if you will, among all the mm -hmm. other beings that are out there in the cosmos, we have to integrate the divine feminine. We have to heal the fractured divine masculine. And, um, you know, these are stones that kind of point us towards doing that. We can't really heal the brokenness of the divine masculine until we can put the divine feminine back on its pedestal and say, hey, goddess, we kind of screwed up here. What, what can we do to fix this? And we kind of have to own that part of it first. And I think the, the um, Veil of Isis crystals are, are excellent tools for helping us in those, those first steps forward.
you know, I don't think I've ever seen a true Lemurian seed crystal. I've had people say, oh, this is what, and I look at it and it's like something inside me is like, no, you're mistaken. Um, but so the, are they, they are, are they six sided? They're quartz based? They are, absolutely. So um, the, the classic shape of like a textbook perfect Lemurian seed crystal, um, towards the base of the crystal will have six more or less equal sides. And then every other one of those pieces is going to taper inwards while the other three remain kind of parallel to the center of the stone. And that tapering kind of creates a triangular or pseudo-triangular cross-section towards the tip of the crystal. And in those cases that slope inwards have these weird kind of um, grooves or etchings on them. We might, we might imagine they kind of look like a tiny stairway um, or maybe like the, the grooves on a record. And they're thought to be these sort of cosmic memories etched into the stones from the sacred scribes of Lemuria. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that was really striking about, especially the first few finds of the Lemurian seed crystals in Brazil, was their inordinate clarity. Um, but, you know, the, the miners figured out something really interesting. If they took ordinary quartz and put the Lemurian seed sticks seed crystal sticker on it, they could get five times the price. So it didn't take long for the market to get flooded with not so accurately labeled crystals. Um, and that's a trend that continues to this day. Um, you know, there are a lot of spurious crystal sellers, and there are also a lot of people who just don't know any better. Not every crystal with a horizontal line on it becomes a Lemurian seed crystal. It has to meet those um, you know, specific geometrical um, qualifications. Typically, they come from specific parts of the world, although those, those parts are um, becoming more numerous every year. We found the Lemurian seed crystals in the Himalayas. Um, I've seen some from Mexico, from Arkansas, some that come from a couple different regions in um, Africa, like uh, Mozambique and Madagascar. Um, the, the places they're coming from is continuing to grow, which is showing us that our consciousness is ready for more of that influence and guidance from the Divine Mother uh, to help us kind of move forward. Wow. And, and do the Lemurian seed crystals um, have, uh, you said they're inordinately clear. Um, do they have any color to them? Is there a variety of shades? The, the original ones were um, transparent quartz. But most of them, uh, we'll say maybe at least half of them, had a very faint coating of hematite or iron oxide, which made them kind of pinkish. Uh, depending on the other minerals that might be present on or below the surface, they can be more red. There are tangerine memorian seed crystals that have a different state of oxidized iron that are sort of a yellowy-orange. Um, there was a, a small find of them a few years back that were a pale sort of champagne color, truly natural citrine, not, not the sort of Crayola yellow or orangey yellow we associate with the heat-treated varieties. Um, but there are, there are um, you know, things in the sort of Lemurian family that kind of span the whole color spectrum if we look hard enough and maybe use our imagination a little bit. Um, there's some mm -hmm. greenish ones that have come from, uh, from China. There are some smoky ones that have been found here, there, and elsewhere. Um, you know, those bluish ones that have sort of the misty inclusions that come from Colombia. Um, they're, they're expanding their family because we are expanding our consciousness to meet them. Oh, that's just, that's so perfectly wonderful. And, and you know, you know that there's a divine plan when you see, when you witness things and you start connecting the dots. 
So, but the, all I mean, these Lemurian crystals. You, you say there's three of the of three of the six sides are parallel, and then three of them kind of bend inward. Um, they taper very slightly, so you know it's still more or less a flat plane, but it's it's tilted towards center versus remaining parallel with the center. Um, and you know, not everyone is textbook perfect. Mother Nature is perfectly imperfect in everything she does. Um, right. Or we could say imperfectly perfect, but I think that's a little more pessimistic. So um, we're going to see variations on that. You know, crystal lattices have idealized forms that we map out in textbooks, um, but just like human beings, um, there's a whole lot of variation that happens with, with the same four um, you know, genetic bases paired in more or less similar sequences. We have you know, billions of people on this planet, and we all look different. And it's the same with you know, mineral species, you know, they always have the same fundamental composition, the same fundamental structure. We're going to see those things um, vary uh, a little bit from specimen to specimen. Okay. Yeah, well, I was, I was asking for the details because we've, you know, we, we go to Arkansas four times a year and we go um, digging crystals as part of that. And and I've had and I've had people that that we've met that it's like oh you know the Murian sea crystal and just like you said they're, they're building it up so that they can charge more money um, but and I'm holding this and I was like I'm not feeling that um, so they they probably were uh, given you know a false kind of information. It does happen. Sometimes there's a lot of um, misinformation, a lot of misconceptions on the the mineral market, not even just among the, the spiritual side of it. It happens on on the, the more mineralogically or, or scientifically inclined end of the sector as well. Um, and that's that's one of the things that, I, you know, it in part can come from a poor understanding of, of what's happening, not, not knowing enough of the science, and other times it happens a little bit more intentionally. Have you ever seen, um, Lavender calls them, her Giza crystals, but they are they are um, quartz crystals that grow underwater. They are double terminated. They're perfectly clear, and they're about the size of a grain of rice, um, for the most part. Have you ever yeah, seen? Yeah, the ones that come from yeah the solution quartz from um, Jeffrey's Quarry from Arkansas. The the mines had oh, so you're from... I'm, Yeah. Right. Um, do you know? Of, most, do you know of any other places where where they have been found? Um, solution quartz can happen in other parts of the world. Um, very very little of it that I've seen elsewhere has resembled the the same kind of um, I'll say intensity of all of the factors that are associated with it that we found at Jeffrey's Quarry. Um, mm-hmm. But there, you know. It, it can happen, those unique morphologies they've got. If you look at them, you know, uh, under magnification, they've gone through a process of dissolution where um, after the crystal was formed, it kind of began to dissolve again and then recrystallize out of that. So it, it gives them very interesting um, multiple terminations at each end, unusual etchings, and we often can't appreciate that with the naked eye. Um, but, you know, those things are a factor of that unique set of coordinates on our planet with its unique um, environmental factors, like its uh, acidity or alkalinity, its pressure, its temperature, the exact amount of quartz that was dissolved in that solution, um, the amount of space that it was given, and so on and so forth, because all of these factors will influence the way those molecules come together to form the crystal. 
and it kind of creates almost like a, a fingerprint. In most cases, no two mines will produce exactly the same thing unless they're part of a bigger geological event that spans a, a much larger region. Um, and so it kind of gives them their, their own unique take on what quartz offers. Okay, well, um, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that, that this would uh, be found somewhere else as well because, yeah, the, um, the Jeffrey mine, uh, mine is, is it's defunct, as you said, and uh, um, we would like to get more of those if they become available. So, um, actually, um, well, one of our one of our producers has has a question that I would ask for her. Um, but if you have a point that you were about to make, I'll, I'll let you continue before we start asking more questions. No, go ahead. Okay. Well. Um, Kathy would want to know if you have a favorite stone and which is the most unique you've ever come across. It's a very good question. Um, I think if I were going to, to answer the first one tactfully, you know, they're all my favorites, but, you know, it's like being a teacher. There's always that favorite kid in your class. So um, my favorite gemstone, just hands down, is Petersite. Um, sometimes called a tempest stone. It's a, a close cousin of Petersite. It forms under slightly different conditions. So rather than having those nice parallel chatoyant kind of iridescent fibers, um, they're crumbled and broken and chopped up and, and swirled together. And because of the um, change in its environment, um, the, the the fibers of that mineral chrysidolite inside it have shifted from blue to gold to red, and you'll often find these colors and others swirled together in a single piece. Um, I just can never get enough Petersite in my life. Um, its name, the Tempest Stone, is on one hand given because of its resemblance to storm clouds, but it has this real stormy, turbulent energy. And as we begin to integrate it, um, we, we start to occupy the eye of the storm. You know, I'm, I'm here in Florida, so we're, we're very familiar with hurricanes, and there's that calm, still, clear space in the center. Um, and when we work with Petersite, we start to notice the change and transformation happening all around us, and yet still it helps us cultivate the ability to have that clarity, that center stillness, in spite of the evolutionary leaps and bounds, the chaos of the cauldron of creation. Um, and so it's a really profound tool to work with in times of transition. Um, and I'd say maybe the most unique, the, the most unique form of quartz that I've come across um, is one that happened just recently. My dear friend Sharon Britton, she's got a wonderful shop in northern central Florida, um, got a very small parcel of crystals from Vietnam. And they have so many stages of growth and inclusions within them um, it, it would be amazing to, you know, cut one open and look at a cross-section, but there's so few of them that, you know, no one would dare do that. Um, but they have this sort of interwoven, like, um, really geometric grid of root heel that comprises one layer. They're like fuzzy green carpets of chlorite um, and probably dozens of other minerals. But they, in, in spite of the fact they're not very large, you could get lost inside them for hours. Um, I've never met another quartz that has the the sort of elemental, raw elemental energy. You really feel the distinct qualities of fire, air, water, and earth, and then that indescribable fifth element just swirling together within them. And with with the right amount of stillness in your heart, you can even experience each of those energies as a separate piece of the whole. Um, and I haven't gotten to, to add one to the toolbox yet, but one day I'm hoping to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Well, that's fascinating. So um, what are some of the other um, newer stones that people might not have heard about? So, um, you know, some of the, the newer goddess-centered stones that are in the book, maybe some that haven't been given their, their proper amount of, uh, of acknowledgement, um, there's a great variety of obsidian called Midnight Lace Obsidian or Lamellar Obsidian uh, that comes from an area near the Black Sea in the Caucasus Mountains, as well as in Oregon. And um, if you hold a, a piece up to the light, you'll see that, like most obsidian, it has very opaque, very opaque black bands in it, but there are these transparent, like smoky, grayish um, bands in between them, and it forms a very lacy pattern. Um, and these have a, a really wonderful energy for connecting to, um, you know, the aspect of the goddess who rules magic and death and transformation. Um, you know, it's it's that veil that separates us from the separates the material plane from the immaterial plane and um they're they're really transformational. Um you know another one that I think is um underappreciated as a stone of the divine feminine is a variety of quartz that's called blue tara quartz. And it goes by a few other names, but um these traditionally have inclusions of blue tourmaline, demordiorite, um, boulangerite, sometimes um crocetolite. And they have this sort of slate gray, blue-gray to like a fairly blue color. And they have a, a wonderful kind of star-like energy to them. They're named after um, the, the goddess of the Bodhisattva Tara from uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And her name literally means star. And she is said to have been born from a tear of um, the Buddha of infinite light or infinite life, Ramitabha. Um, and this tear was said to represent his inner current of divine feminine. So the, the Buddha principle could manifest itself in a feminine way instead of always being masculine. And that's um, a really beautiful teaching, especially when we see like the, the more traditional varieties of Buddhism, those that are a little bit closer to um, you know, the, the source teachings, remind us that not everybody reaches enlightenment. You know, in, in Theravada Buddhism, you have to be born male. You have to be born in, in a place where the Dharma is, where the teachings of the Buddha are. And you have to follow the Dharma. You have to lead that lifestyle, which usually means taking vows um, and having a more monastic life. And therefore, um, Theravada Buddhism is sometimes called the lesser vehicle because it's a, a smaller, smaller raft for us to get on and float to um, enlightenment. We can't all fit on it. And yet Mahayana um, and this, this family of practices like Tibetan Buddhism is at least on or next door to Mahayana Buddhism. It's called the greater vehicle because we all have a place on it. Everybody has the opportunity to reach enlightenment. And so, you know, this female energy of the, the Buddha is born through Tara. Um, and there's so many different emanations of her. There's blue Tara, there's green Tara, there's red Tara, there's white Tara. Um, and it shows the diversity of the divine feminine. Um, this particular variety, of course, is also associated with Mother Mary, whose mantle, her robes are often painted a similar shade of blue. Um, and it's got a, a really profound energy of compassion. Um, I think uh, another, another stone that I'm quite in love with that the Chinese have known about for a very long time um, is called Yemingzhu in Chinese, which translates as luminous pearl. And um, traditionally, this could be any rock or mineral that had a quality of persistent phosphorescence. So you expose it to an energy source such as light or heat, and it produces light of its own. 
and once you remove that source of energy, it continues to produce that, that uh, light in a very intense way. And most minerals that phosphoresce do so fairly weakly. Um, but some varieties of fluorite and calcite and dozens of other minerals can do this um, on rare occasions with exceptional brilliance. And gaming dew is associated with our inner light. It helps us find, as, as one of my friends puts it, your, your inner superhero genius self. Whatever that brilliance you've got within you, it pulls it out and helps you manifest your highest potential. And in myths from China especially, we see it associated with symbols of the divine feminine. Sometimes you'll see a, a glowing pearl being held by the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion and mercy. Um, you'll also see it associated with a Taoist goddess by the name of Suong Mu, the name um, implies that she's sort of the, the governor or the, the empress of the Western paradise. She is sort of queen of the immortals. Um, and she's also connected to this stone. So it, it recurs in several other um, myths around the world, too. We see this idea of the wish-fulfilling gem, the Tintamani, or the Huotsu in Chinese, the fire pearl, the Agnimani in Sanskrit, um, recurring. And, and oftentimes they, they remind us of this sort of brilliant fiery light that that our, our soul is meant to have. And by falling out of sync with the universe, by, by losing awareness of our inner current of divinity, of any expression, we have let that light dim. And Yeming Zhu has made itself known again in the West, um, especially to remind us of that light so we can claim it and, and bring it into the next chapter. Wow, and that's I'm I'm looking at the at the at the copy that you sent, Ye Ming Zhu. Is that is that Y E H M I N G Z H U? That's the 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 Chinese name for this stone. It is. It's one of them, and it, it's got a whole bunch. Um, another one that maybe more clearly connects it to the divine feminine is Ming Yue Zhu, which means uh, bright moon pearl. We often see the moon connected to the goddess. Um, so it's. It's a really fantastic stone. Most of what we see on the market is either um, simulated, it's another stone that has been treated or an artificial substance that's been made, or it's been synthesized. They, they grow the same ingredients in the laboratory to make something comparable to it. Um, the, the natural stuff is very hard to come by. I have a, a wonderful sphere of um, this deep brown fluorite that fluoresces a really vivid yellow-green and, and does so... Um, quite brightly, and this would, would also qualify as being uh, natural yaming shoe. Um, the one that's photographed in the book, though, is a, a synthesized or a, a lab-created version. How does that affect the energy of it? You know, when we work with man-made stones, as long as they're actual crystals and not just uh, glass or other materials, um, they have the same chemical, physical, optical, mechanical properties as their natural counterparts, but they feel they feel a little bit empty. It's like having a beautiful stained glass lamp with no light bulb in it. And so we have to be the light to turn it on. Um, that means they have got this sort of blank slate that we can do anything with. They haven't been programmed by Mother Earth for anything. Um, sometimes we come across some, some lab-created gems that don't feel great because they've kind of taken on the energy of their creators. And if they're not made for, um, we'll say, um, really wonderful purposes, then um, they, they sometimes need some healing of their own. Um, some of the, what they call the mm -hmm. Siberian quartz, the really brightly colored um, lab-grown quartzes um, are sometimes victim to that kind of energy. Um, I've got a, a couple wonderful pieces of quartz that are grown by a man in Ohio, 
and they have this real strong, almost Atlantean energy to them, and they're some of the most energetic crystals that I have in my toolbox, um, even in spite of the fact Mother Earth didn't make them herself. Well, I know, I mean, crystals, I would imagine, I mean, they, if, if they get hot enough, they're liquid, and then it's the cooling process where they go back into their into their form. So, if, I mean, if you had the raw material um, and, and, and the right um, respect, I can I can see how you're saying that that you know even though it was grown not in the earth it's highly potentized. Yeah, and, and in many cases when we work with lab created gemstones, they're more pure. They've they've got uh, more intense energy because there are fewer impurities in them. And you know if we've got a, a beautiful piece of ruby, for example, that is made by Mother Earth, our average ruby is not very transparent. It might not even be the most saturated, like true red color. Um, and it's going to have a very gentle energy. And then we have those gem quality rubies, those really intensely like, you know, ruby red. That, that's the same kind of ruby that's grown in laboratories for use in laser technology. Um, and when we connect with even a, a lab-created, a synthesized ruby that has the, that level of purity to it, it has that laser-like energy. But there's, there's still kind of that, that disconnect. It doesn't quite feel like a natural crystal. Interesting. So, in your book, um, you you talk about various goddesses and myths um, from around the world and different cultures, and the stones that were associated with them, and what those particular stones and that goddess would be um, concerned with in a particular, you know, area of of life or a, a part of life. And uh, did you? Um, I, I just got to ask you if you put Athena in your book. She makes a, a few appearances, yes. Um, <laughs> and if we read this section on garnage, we'll see that um, Athena and some of her symbols are sometimes inscribed on on um, polished garnets as a talismanic gemstone for victory in whatever we might pursue. And then we'll also find some other stones, both traditional and a little less traditional associated with Athena um, because she's often connected to things like study and learning. We might work with fluorite to connect to her. Um, Traditionally, we could associate her with jasper, especially yellow jasper, chalcedony, agate, blue sapphire, which has a strong connection to the mind in modern gemstone therapy, red coral because it's uh, a stone associated with things like battle and warfare and the planet Mars and, you know, it's a more masculine counterpart to what Athena brings to the table. Um, there, there are so many stones we can use to connect with. And so some of the ones that appear in this table, for example, are my personal connections um, that I have with these goddesses and these stones. But for our own relationship with these, these goddess energies, we can forge our own connections, our own correspondences between the, the mineral kingdom and, and the great mother. Wow, so it's it 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 flows into whatever someone needs to find in it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it, it really um, does. yeah. So you have some um, some sample rituals, spells, and meditations um, in the book to go along with certain stones. You want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So you know, one of the 
one of the benchmarks that I, I hold for all of my books is that they, they need to be practical. It's great to, you know, research things and, and find out about their theoretical uses, but unless you've got that template to begin working with them, then you might not be able to make those connections on your own. So um, I've got samples of meditations and invocations and rituals. They're going to be um, like sample recipes for things like charm bags or spell pouches, uh, templates for crystal grids, um, stone combinations that you might use for um, infusing in water or oil to use for, for ritual or for healing. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really hoping readers will take those instructions and make them their own, treat it like a beloved um, recipe book. You know, if there's something in the recipe that you just don't have in your cabinet or something that doesn't agree with your palate, you make substitutions. You, you change things, you add things, you subtract things. Um, and I, I really am hoping that these rituals will be just like that for the readers. Um, so that way they can inspire you to, to forge that, that personal connection to the divine feminine. Um, but you're going to find things for protection, things for love, things for money, things for, you know, healing, um, both on a physical and spiritual level. Um, you know, all, all of the basics. I really wrote the book for um, to be as beginner-friendly as possible with those things in mind, um, rather than having really long, complex, arduous rituals. It's all very simple stuff that you can kind of weave into whatever practice you've already got through um, whatever tools you already bring to the table. Uh, and I, I really am hoping that we'll we'll find more ways to honor the divine feminine together. I just love that. That that is just like the the best the best thing that you could have come up with. <clears throat> like a you know, like you said, like a recipe book and and put this into practical use. Because there I mean there are a lot of people, I mean, especially in our business, um, you know, and we do uh, chart readings and and people that have the star markings for working with crystals, but they don't know where to start. So I'm going to send them to you. <laughs> it's like okay, oh, you go get go get these books, and um, and that will really take them a long way in their um, in their journey in learning more and uh, connecting with the the precious sacred stones that Mother Earth has just given to us. So and I, um, I'm going to open up the switchboard here in a moment. So if anyone has a, a question for Nicholas, you'll, if you're already on the switchboard, then you just need to press 1 so we know you want to come on the air and our producers will get you ready. And if you're listening on the computer, then you'll need to dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1. And um, we'll get, give you a chance to talk to Nicholas. But I have, I'm so glad that you're here tonight because I have a kind of a, a mystery, and I don't know if 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 um, if you're uh, uh, familiar with this, but I was looking for um, some um, EMF shielding protection for all the you know the cell phone, microwave, Wi-Fi. I was looking for um, a, a way to protect myself from that. 
Well, I was on a website of a, of a person who's been on the show, which is called lessemf.com, and, and I had a lot of confidence in him because of the way he screens um, the people that, that sell on his website. He's got like 300 products, and they have to pass rigid you know, testing and proofing before he, it gets on his website. So that's why I was there. And there was this link that I thought, I mean, a video that I thought was showing how this particular meter worked. I clicked on it, and this story's getting too long. Um, <laughs> but it took me to this YouTube thing where a guy was talking about a natural stone that is formed in the earth. They have, I think, a, a trademark um, name for it called shieldite. And I thought that's probably not the geological name, but I wanted to learn more about it um, because actually from from this, this man's um, experience, uh, he was just swearing by this and it's it's just a it's a black stone um it it's it doesn't have a lot of weight to it it's not like a really heavy stone but um it absorbs electromagnetic radiation like a like a sponge it it attracts it and absorbs it and then once a day you have to put it on this little grounding thing to drain out you know the like emptying your vacuum sweeper you drain the stuff out and have you ever heard of a stone that absorbs radiation like that uh, i mean shungite is a stone um, that is actually occurring and black and lightweight um, that has a lot of those same functions um, it it's not necessarily that it's always absorbing although it does kind of have this sponge-like quality to it but it can also um it reverses the torsion of the energy fields that are harmful to us. So one of the one of the defining factors of harmful EMF versus those of natural sources is, in, in simplified terms, the direction in which they spin. So, you know, just arbitrarily we'll say clockwise is good and counterclockwise is bad, but it's, it's a little more complex than that. Um, and what shungite does is within its sphere of influence, you place a, a piece of shungite in your environment or on your body. Um, when, when an EMF comes into contact with that, it is sort of spun in the opposite direction, so it is no longer deleterious for life, but is actually beneficial for, for living systems. Um, and I keep Shungite all over the home. It's become a really popular thing in the New Age. Um, you'll see it put in things like uh, it's being added to a lot of Organite. Um, you can find little things to attach to your cell phones and other devices, and I've got some on my cell phone right now. Um, so I've got Shungite with me everywhere I go. I often wear um, a bracelet with it, and it's, it's just a fabulous tool. Um, and so I, I suspect maybe shieldite is someone's trademark term for shungite or a, a shungite lookalike. It might be um, a stone with some similar composition from another part of the world and therefore would get called a different name. Um, but without actually examining the material, I, I wouldn't be able to give you a, a more concrete answer. Yeah. Well, you know, now that, you, now that you've um, said that, I actually have a piece of, of shungite and, and it looks very much like the pendant that I'm wearing um, I mean, the stem, I mean, it's very light, and uh, this one's got a little silver running through it, but it's, um, I bet you're right. I bet that it's just, it's a, a brand that someone has put on that, but it really works, and that's the bottom line. I don't care what you call it, <laughs> as long as it it works and it does um, um, improve um, the the bad resp- the the bad reaction that we have to... To electromagnetic radiation, so Mother Nature is always giving us what we need if we would just be aware enough 
and grateful enough to accept it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that the days where science and spirituality are, are getting closer and closer together and, you know, the, the new model of medicine is integrative medicine. It's not going to be allopathic versus complementary um, or alternative. It's, it's going to be integrating the two sides into one bigger picture. And we're going to see that in, in all walks of life. Oh, I, I'm I'm sure. I mean, it it can't come quickly enough quickly enough for me. But um, it, it, we are moving in that in that positive direction. Um, but there's still there's still a lot of shadow that needs to be dealt with. And um, what do you um, is there a stone that's really good for transmuting? You know those lower energies or any uh, stone. Never, that if we're still kind of talking about the, the electromagnetic side of that energy spectrum, you know, Shimguide is my go-to, but there are others. In gem therapy, we use pink tourmaline a lot for that. Um, pink tourmaline strengthens our emotional field to be less permeable to outside influences, whether that's other people's emotional baggage or, you know, the, the same radiation that comes from our devices. Um, there's a wonderful book on Shimguide um, by Regina Martino by uh, Inner Traditions, my medicine publisher. Um, and it, it actually details um, tests with Shungai versus other stones that are popularly used. And although many of those other stones show positive results, Shungai by far outperforms them. Um, but, you know, without access to that, you could also maybe work with something like fluorite. Um, there's a fun combination of pyrite and magnetite called healer's gold um, that's really effective um, for kind of creating this buffer between us and the outside world, and it's great for removing attachments from our energy fields, both the measurable kind of harmful energies and the subtle, more woo-woo kind of energies. So if we've got any attachments, it's, it's great for getting those out. Um, black tourmaline, smoky quartz, hematite are all very protective. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of great tools that are out there. Um, and if we're talking more big picture, like shifting the shifting our, our collective energies. You know, there are so many wonderful stones that are kind of leading the way with this. We can't go wrong with just working with plain old clear reports because it, it works with kind of the whole spectrum of energy. Another one that I think is great for these shifts and also relates to the divine feminine is aquamarine because it helps it helps us kind of release the, the junk we carry around, both physically and not so physically, um, and allows the light of our soul to shine through and guide us towards wholeness, um, and it's a stone that's long been associated with many different goddesses, especially oceanic ones, ones connected to uh, the oceans, the rivers, the seas, the lakes. Um, it's got this watery energy to it. It reminds us that all things are in ecstatic motion, just like water. Oh, oh, I love that. I actually, I, that's my birthstone, and I, I think I'm, I'm going to go get some. I, I like that just really, really uh, connected with what you just said there. So um, do you have any new projects planned? I sure do. Um, so this year I'm going to be traveling a lot. You'll be able to um, come see me on the road. I'm headed to New England several times, going up to the northeast, out west of Colorado at the International New Age Trade Show, and I'm doing my first ever retreat at the island of Avalon in Glastonbury um, in Somerset in the U.K. So, um, you know, more info about that will be online. You can check out the, the tour's website, chalisontime, T-H-Y-M-E.com. Um, and then I also have a new book that is um, projected to come out um, late this year or early next year. And I can't give too many details away just yet, but it's, it's going to be everything that you need to know to work with crystals 
for healing, for growth, for manifestation, all in one spot with a huge directory of crystals, tons of hands-on activities, and all the how and why that you've never got. Oh, excellent. That is so needed. It is so needed. And would you please um, say that website again for your, uh, your retreat to Avalon? Absolutely. So it is Chalice and Time. It's Time Like the Herb, T-H-Y-M-E, dot com. So Chalice, Chalice, Mm -hmm. C-H-A-L-I-C-E, just like the Holy Chalice, and the word and, A-N-D, and and Mm -hmm. time like the spice, T-H-Y-M-E, chaliceandtime.com. And that's where um, people can go to find out more about your your trip to um, Glastonbury and Avalon. Yes, and we'll be visiting some other sacred sites, working with the stones that are native to that region, working with some other stones. But the the theme for our trip is healing the heart of the mother. And um, part of the way we can do that is by healing our own hearts because we are all part and parcel of the Great Mother. So um, I'm really looking forward to joining some of you there. Wow. Wow. What are the, do you have the dates? Um, I believe it starts um, August 30th. Um, but all the details will be on the site. I'm going to be doing kind of like a mini tour through the UK. So my, my travel dates are all kind of garbled in my head right now. I know I, I leave before that and I come back home after that. And that's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Nicholas, it has been a pleasure. You are a wealth of information and what you're doing is so much needed. And we commend you for your work on behalf of, the goddess reconnecting people to the goddess energy and getting back to that um, that balance that we so sorely need. Thank so you. I want to. I <laughs> think you're so welcome. And your your main website is theluminouspearl.com. And then um, your newest book, Stones of the Goddess: Crystals for the Divine Feminine, and you've got. How many? Four, five, one, two, three, four previous books, and uh, yeah. so we we strongly recommend and endorse um, your work. And thank you so much for what you have brought to the planet, and continue to help people as they reconnect to Mother Nature. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's our pleasure, Nicholas. And when you have, you know, your next book comes out, please, you know, um, let us know. And you come back and tell us all about it. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. You're so welcome. So um, this is um, it for us tonight. We're going to wrap it up. And I want to thank Kathy, Jada, and Fiona for hosting the Switchboard. And we will be back next week. And until then... Find gratitude in every day and show compassion at every opportunity. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 